This is 105.9 The Region, where parents talk and explore practical, proactive, and evidence-based solutions. This is Where Parents Talk with Leanne Castellino. It's great to be back with you here on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino, and this is Where Parents Talk, where every week our goal is to leave you with a little food for thought on raising kids today. We interview thought leaders in the parenting space to provide evidence-based research or their lived experience on parenting hot topics. All of our guests are also parents themselves. Today, we're going to dig deep on a topic that's been all over the headlines consistently for months now. Consent is being discussed in sports venues, the workplace, and on university campuses, which is familiar territory for our guest. He is a professor with a PhD in clinical psychology and associate dean in the Faculty of Arts at the University of New Brunswick. Dr. Scott Ronis is also a father of two young daughters. The thrust of his research focuses on contributing factors to youth emotional and behavioral issues and youth development as it relates to adolescent sexual experiences. Dr. Ronis joins us today from Fredericton. Welcome and thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. Dr. Ronis, when it comes to adolescent sexual interactions, what concerns you most about what we're seeing and what is trending in this space among Canadian youth and young adults from someone who researches this topic? Over the years, uh, it's not for a lack of trying. We've seen a lot of uh, really good curricula, uh, a lot of good bridging between the research side and uh, what is presented in the schools and uh, even on the media and within books. Uh, so there's lots out there. And yet we still uh, tend to see a divide in what actually happens in practice among youth, um, in the communication between parents and youth. And, and that's uh, really concerning because it isn't for a lack of trying uh, amongst uh, researchers and uh, amongst uh, people in schools and, and even parents uh, who are really trying to access the latest information uh, and are really willing, and kids are also willing, to engage in conversations. But uh, we see time and time again, uh, sexual assaults haven't uh, decreased. Uh, we see uh, notions of consent uh, being misunderstood uh, in multiple ways. Um, and it's also challenging because there are changing technologies. There's uh, ways that people communicate, and of course, with uh, communication, which is great, uh, there's also uh, misunderstandings and misinterpretations that occur uh, within these new technologies, and and we're always trying to catch up uh, with these uh, newer technologies. So that's uh, a concern uh, that I have, uh, and of course, it it keeps uh, me at work, uh, and there's always room for uh, trying to stay ahead or at least catch up to. Uh, the various changes uh, that occur. Let's peel back on some of the layers that you just articulated there. You talk about not for lack of effort. So what should be happening on the topic of consent that currently is not happening in society? We have to uh, think about it as a process. So in terms of sexual education, uh, it is not a, a one and done thing. We know this in theory, but in practice, I, I think it's we think that there's these certain snapshots that occur. Uh, and so, for example, beginning at home uh, from a very early age, uh, 
being comfortable around uh, terms uh, regarding gender and, and sexuality uh, are, are incredibly important, uh, more so than uh, having the conversations and what is discussed. It's, it's really making an open, uh, comfortable environment. Uh, and, and that's continuous, looking for opportunities, uh, looking for ways to bring up discussions uh, and not to think about when something happens later on but to really begin having those conversations because that's you're really laying the groundwork and both in terms of sexuality and gender but also just generally becoming comfortable uh, and being emotionally connected uh, between parents and kids is is uh, important um, same thing with the schools schools uh, have uh, curricula that are built upon set uh, places where they go through with kids uh, to discuss things and that's not the way kids uh, react. The, uh, kids are developing at different paces. Uh, they have different peer groups. And so it is uh, very hard when there's like a fourth grade curriculum, a seventh grade curriculum, and, and, and so on to not match up to where kids uh, might uh, be at. Uh, again, it's not for a lack of trying, um, but it, it doesn't uh, really hit upon the needs that kids have at, at any one moment and they're fleeting. And so the idea is to try and um, meet the kids where they're at and, um, uh, and make sure that uh, discussions are happening uh, at various paces and, and to the extent that is needed. It's not always a, a semester long conversation or discussion over a topic. It could be at one point in time, a three minute conversation that happens uh, regarding the definitions of consent and desire and, and willingness. Uh, and, and so, you know, those are the things I think that are, are important to think about for the schools, for, for kids. I also tend to think that we uh, try and target, for, and, and this hasn't really changed that much, but we tend to target uh, potential victims and or, and or survivors rather than thinking about the people who might perpetrate uh, uh, you know, or try initiate, uh, you know, sexual activity with, uh, with someone. And I think uh, we need to do a better job of, of taking a, a broader look in those conversations. You are listening to Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Leanne Castellino, and we're talking about consent with clinical psychologist, Dr. Scott Ronis. So what I hear you saying is that we need to adopt more of a proactive approach and if that's the case, what age does this ideally need to start at these conversations at home? The age at which we begin uh, is from the time that a child can speak or that a parent is engaging with the child. We tend to subtly uh, you know, shut down conversation or uh, move a conversation in very uncomfortable ways. For example, just in the naming of body parts, you know, we talk about a PP, and we kind of make this sort of this um, thing that's uh, fun, um, but we never get away from that. And so it's it's really using the the language early on uh, that it is appropriate, uh, and and not making it something that's uncomfortable. Or when we see a young child uh, touching themselves because it's pleasurable, that's a very normative. Thing, that we don't shame them into that. So those are very subtle kind of communications that we give off as parents. That's not the sex talk, 
but it's something that's really incredibly important from the beginning ages uh, on. Um, there's a natural development that that happens for a lot of kids and a certain curiosity that takes place uh, at the beginning of school age three to five and six, uh, where they uh, begin touching themselves, they begin exploring themselves, and that as should be discussed, and parents should look for cues uh, that say, oh, this is an opportunity to talk about something. This is a touchstone moment where, or a teachable moment uh, that we can have about, you know, safe touch and, and uh, you know, touch that a, a child would want and, and to have those conversations and to engage in them. Um, it's also conversations that, uh, you know, one can have about initiating touch, uh, what is uh, good and what is positive versus something that isn't acceptable uh, within uh, today's society. Let's talk about consent more specifically. It really has been the stuff of headlines quite consistently in recent years, really stemming in large part from the Me Too movement. We've heard the conversation in relation to university campuses, minor and professional sports, and other areas of society. So how do you define consent, and how should consent be defined? So consent is a really complex term. There's the, the sort of legal definitions, uh, and then there there is the. Uh, it, it used to be that we uh, combined uh, consent with willingness or desire, and uh, those things need to be pulled apart. Uh, so uh, I'll answer your question, but uh, desire somebody might have a certain desire, and that's sort of on a continuum. Uh, that they want to, in some ways, engage in activity for a variety of reasons. But consent uh, is where the person affirms their willingness to engage in uh, sexual activity. Consent itself, in terms of uh, displaying willingness, can be both internal and external. And so somebody might be, uh, they might have desire or not have desire, they might be willing or or not feel willing uh, to engage in activity. And then there's a certain expression of that willingness. And that could be both verbal in the very strict way of, I want to engage in this activity uh, in a very affirmative way, um, or it could be nonverbal. And we see this all the time, certain cues, uh, getting closer with an intimate partner, um, giving off uh, subtle cues. And it gets quite tricky, uh, and it's strictly tricky for an adolescent who is learning those cues. Uh, it may be less tricky uh, if someone has been married 30 years uh, and, and knows their partner and their partner has expressed to them what those subtle cues are, um, but it, it's very, very tricky for adolescents who are really learning about communication, really learning about uh, what uh, somebody else would want, and, and those cues that they think are cues may not be so. So it, I think those are the points where schools and uh, parents and other peers can actually engage in those conversations about, you know, what is appropriate, what to look for, um, and define consent both internally and uh, externally. Let's unpack that a little bit more because you talk about cues, but really we're talking about communication, whether it's verbal or nonverbal. So what in your estimation should consent look like? Give us an example if you can. Yeah, so uh, over the years, we've moved uh, from uh, a, a no means no uh, kind of consent uh, to an affirmative type of consent, 
where yes means yes and everything else is is no. Uh, and so we really try and get uh, kids to and and adults as well to engage in more affirmative uh, consent uh, and uh, to actually think about that as a process and not as a a one and done thing. So uh, you know using uh, in terms of engaging in intimate uh, behavior, um, asking a partner about whether they can move forward, whether this is something that they both want and are willing to engage in, and then, uh, you know, kind of move uh, interactions based on that affirmation, that process. So, um, you know, getting closer, holding hands. Is it okay if I hold your hand? Um, and, and, you know, going with a more affirmative process that actually can be, uh, uh, in terms of a relationship, uh, intimately positive. Uh, and so trying to get kids to use affirmative consent uh, is incredibly important. Uh, it doesn't have to be in the, uh, I've seen sort of, you know, comically, uh, uh, like a setting up a contract. It doesn't have to be a contract. It could actually be a positive thing to engage in that conversation. Uh, in an affirmative way. Absolutely. We will have much more ahead with our guest, Dr. Scott Ronis, clinical psychologist, professor, and associate dean at the University of New Brunswick. We're talking about consent. And a reminder, if you miss any part of this radio broadcast, you can always download the podcast at 1059theregion.com or whereparentstalk.com. We will be back with much more right after the break. Want to learn more about the show? Email info at whereparentstalk.com. Stick around. Leanne Castellino and Where Parents Talk will be right back on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to Where Parents Talk. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Here's Leanne Castellino. Welcome back. We are discussing consent as it relates to young people, society today, and what that discussion looks like for parents. Our guest is Dr. Scott Ronis, clinical psychologist and associate dean in the Faculty of Arts at the University of New Brunswick. Before the break, Dr. Ronis, you talked about what consent might look like. It might be just as important to illuminate what consent is not. Can you provide some examples for us? So consent um, is is not uh, pushing uh, until one uh, goes along with. Uh, I think uh, there's a certain gendered script uh, that we've tried to get rid of, um, but is is still tremendously there. Um, that uh, one partner, usually a male partner, uh, uh, pushes until they get the answer that they want, and that is. That's uh, that's not uh, to blame any one, you know, sex or or gender than another, uh, but it's it's in society across societies uh, something that's that's been pushed. So uh, it's uh, consent has to be uh, voluntary. It has to be willing, and there has to be capacity. And capacity can be difficult, but generally we think about ages uh, that somebody at a certain age most likely does not have the capacity to voluntarily understand and uh, and uh, verbally or non-verbally consent to behavior. Uh, so uh, 
consent is not just the communication, it's also thinking about whether there's capacity. Involvement of, of drugs or, or alcohol is an important factor that we oftentimes see uh, with sexual assaults, uh, that uh, when someone is engaging uh, or, or has, is under the influence of alcohol or drugs, that there's a lack of capacity. And so that's an important piece where consent uh, is not voluntarily given. And uh, that's an, an important piece that we see even looking back when we interview people uh, from uh, uh, you know, the early 20s and, and young adulthood, that they thought something was consensual at a certain age when they, when they engaged in that behavior early on, but looking back on it, they realized that it wasn't. Uh, so consent is where there is a certain capacity uh, that the person has voluntarily come to uh, a decision uh, and is is willing to move forward. Uh, and so those are the things I, I know I've kind of answered both what consent is, but but I, I hope you see that where uh, where it's what is not. We alluded to the topic of consent making headlines in a variety of arenas, including university campuses, the workplace, and the sports domain. What message do you believe is missing from society's conversation on this topic? Everybody is responsible. Um, and you see it, uh, there's a sort of a social norming that goes on, particularly in groups. And it's, it's very subtle. Nobody uh, or most groups, from the coaches to the players, when you give them uh, a certain scenario, most people would say it's not okay to engage in a sexual behavior against someone's will. However, we see these things play out. Uh, and so everybody has responsibility for making sure that the messaging is clear from the coaches to bystanders, uh, to people engaging in sexual behavior, whether that's initiation uh, or somebody who uh, has been part of being initiated, that uh, those conversations happen, that everybody has some level of responsibility. Uh, and we see this time and time again. Uh, and it's to put blame on a single person, uh, it, it doesn't deal with the situations, that there are uh, things that we as a society need to think about. Um, and, and even bigger than the teams or fraternities or, or, or social groups, it, it starts uh, at home, it starts in societies. Uh, and so we need to think about how do we take responsibility in society uh, to, to make those changes, both subtle and, uh, and, and quite uh, formative changes. Certainly, the internet and social media have added multiple layers of complexity to this topic. We're talking about amplification, potential danger as it relates to bullying, peer pressure, groupthink, and so on, when we're talking about consent. So how can a parent support their child, son or daughter, when it comes to consent against this kind of backdrop? This is where uh, one of the trickier things, because there's a certain peer pressure. Um, my child who just entered middle school has pushed me uh, time and time again for uh, a cell phone. Uh, and I've worked with uh, families and, and clients uh, where they have cell phones. And, and once uh, the proverbial horse gets out of the barn, uh, it's very hard to put the horse back in the barn. Um, 
And uh, with that, there are new uh, technologies, there's new platforms that are used. Uh, and so a part of it is uh, considering whether a particular child uh, can make decisions uh, and what are the parameters around those decisions and not letting uh, you know, free reign. So for example, with uh, cell phones, making sure that it starts off slow, making sure that the parameters, which we're all, we're all not very good. Uh, most of us carry our cell phones in our pockets and our technologies are very close to us. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise that kids have a very difficult time knowing where those boundaries lie. And so for parents uh, thinking about uh, how to slowly open up those boundaries, um, making sure that there's a certain leverage when you begin to allow uh, a child and, and young uh, adolescent to uh, engage in social media, that they give permission for their parents to check out uh, their web browser, that there's conversations that occur. Those are those teachable moments that parents can look for um, to, to have that rather than just sort of moving in. So, and then you know, instead of uh, punishing when a mistake happens, again, that becomes a teachable moment. Uh, so uh, if, you know, a child has posted something on social media, uh, looking at it from a lens of what would this look like uh, in society? What would this look like five years from now? Would this child appreciate having this information out there? That could become a teachable moment between a parent and child to say, this is probably not something that you would really want to have out there. We talk about the most extreme examples of sexting, um, but it could be in, in more subtle ways in the communications with an intimate partner. We can, and that could be a teachable moment uh, where a conversation happens between a parent and child and says to them, you're expressing this communication, but this becomes something that is, is permanent. Uh, and so let's have this, this conversation. And the same thing is true on another side where if someone's requesting uh, images or they're putting out and requesting information from uh, their partner at a young age, that that's not an appropriate thing and, and that they should engage uh, in more appropriate uh, communication, whether it's relationship communication or more specifically sexual communication. When we're talking about tweens, teens and young adults, formative years, developmental years that are key in a child's life, what would you suggest to a parent who, let's say, has not had the benefit of having those teachable moments along the way, as you describe? What would you say in terms of the language that they could consider starting to use with that teen, tween or young adult as it relates to consent? It's hard when when you haven't set up the groundwork. And that doesn't have to be about sexuality or, or, or gender but uh, it's, it's having that connection, that emotional connection. And, and so that's the first thing is making sure that there's a certain emotional connection. And even if you, as a parent say, you know, I did, haven't established the emotional connection I would have liked, or I didn't really know how to, even bringing that up to a teenager can be a really good conversation to have and say, you know, I, I think we haven't really connected and I'd like to connect more with you. Um, if a parent is uncomfortable, perhaps because they weren't raised or modeled uh, with a certain way of discussing or they're not so familiar with things, that's okay. Um, you, you, you come to the table with what you have. Uh, I think to be honest uh, with a child and say, you know, 
I want to engage in these conversations with you, but I don't know how. Let's work on this together. I think can be an important uh, jumping off point. Uh, so I think those are kind of the key things. If you need help, there's actually a lot of help out there from you know videos that one can uh, engage with uh, between a parent and child to start off those conversations um, to more uh, you know back and forth, perhaps with a therapist uh, to say, you know, I'd like to engage in this conversation, but I don't know how a therapist can mediate some of that conversation uh, between a parent and child and just allow for that openness. The parent doesn't have to have all the answers. I think that's the mistake that, that parents run is that they have to have all the answers to then begin to have those conversations. And I think it's okay for a parent to say to a child, I wasn't raised like this, but I want to do something honest with you, uh, I think is an important step. I think sometimes parents will run the risk of uh, putting in humor and making jokes in light of things, um, you know, kind of teasing their kids as a way to engage in those conversations. And there's room for that. But I think sometimes what that sends is a signal to the child that there's discomfort. And the kid learns that fairly quickly um, and, and doesn't engage in that back and forth conversation uh, with the child. So I think being careful uh, with, uh, you know, covering up things with humor um, or, or, you know, kind of engaging at a, a certain level uh, that a, a kid isn't ready for. You can start small and be honest in where you're at uh, with the child. And I, I think that just is, is just room for, for the next conversation to happen. So start slow. Dr. Ronis, are we at a critical point in your view in terms of how we talk about and address consent? Well, I'll give a kind of a cliche response. So yes, we are at a critical point, but I think we've always been at a critical point. Uh, so there, if you go back generations, um, parents have always complained about kids and kids have always complained about parents. And uh, we've often um, kind of moved forward with a lack of, of information, a lack of understanding, a lack of uh, healthy uh, sexuality and uh, healthy relationships. So uh, that's continued. Um, the fire didn't start here. Uh, and yet it gets trickier because there's a lot more competing messaging uh, that parents uh, and families and kids have to deal with. Uh, and so we are at a critical moment in that sense uh, that uh, it's just uh, more difficult uh, because of the messaging that's, that's out there. Uh, so I, I think it's just starting small and just beginning to have those conversations and and thinking about uh, how to use the resources and technology and and the, and the messaging in a healthy way, and not worrying so much uh, about all the things out there that are negative because it, it can be overwhelming if if you do focus on on that and and so it's really just countering uh, some of that with positive resources and there are lots out there. And we'll have to end it there. Dr. Scott Ronis, clinical psychologist and associate dean in the Faculty of Arts at the University of New Brunswick, we appreciate your time and expertise today. That is Where Parents Talk for this week. Remember, you can catch the full video version of this interview, as well as the podcast on whereparentstalk.com and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Leanne Castellino. Thanks for listening here on 105.9 The Region. Hope you'll join us next time. 
Sign up for Leanne's parenting newsletter and so much more at whereparentstalk.com. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region.